Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! Hi, this is David. And this is Shlomi. And you've tuned into Left to Our Own Devices, the product security podcast. Our guest today is Adam Bolton, VP of Security Technologies at Cybellum. Adam is one of the most experienced software security pros on the planet with over 15 years of experience in security engineering. Uh, among other things, he has more than uh, 100, or is it more, uh, Adam, cybersecurity patents under your belt? Oh, yeah, I think it's in excess of 120 now. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So he's definitely one of the leading experts also in, in reverse engineering of device binaries in particular and in general in product security. So we're very, very happy to have him on today. So welcome to the show, Adam. Ah, thank you. Pleasure to be here. So uh, full disclosure first, we actually wanted to book Adam to be on the podcast for a while now, but he has since uh, joined the Cybellum team, which we are uh, both part of. So although this is a completely independent conversation, we wanted to get it out of the way uh, first. So Adam, tell us a little bit about your journey into the world of embedded device software security. How did it start? How did you get into that world in the first place? The, the beginning of it was, was more varied and probably something that most security professionals are familiar with of doing typical security critical systems. So like web applications, mobile applications, source code reviews, and never really getting exposure to embedded devices. I don't have an electronics background. My background is software engineering. And you sort of go on this journey of more readily available general purpose software. So like web applications, they're more accessible. There's mature tooling around that. And I just found it just started to go on a journey after it was many years of um, starting to be exposed to more sort of proprietary technology, more complex technology. Um, and that's just something I regard more with embedded devices. They tend to be closed. The tooling isn't as sort of readily available um, and requires a different skill set, right, with reverse engineering. And despite having a reverse engineering background, the industry wasn't as, I'd say, sort of a, as prevalent in terms of, say, more traditional pen testing with web applications, with mobile apps and source code reviews. So it wasn't until around... 2010, I started to get more involved with embedded device security, thinking about hardware and you know more concepts to do with the root of trust, and starting to think more about supply chain uh, software security as well. And that's a huge theme for embedded. So it was really a, a sort of meandering path that started on security critical systems, more general purpose software, and then found that the career just sort of meandered down that path. I didn't set out deliberately to initially do any embedded device security. I think like many security professionals, and then you just find your exposure increases. You become more curious about other systems. 
Um, so you're not pushing it necessarily from a career perspective. It's more that your curiosity and that desire for new challenges, you just find you end up going down those paths. And I started picking up as a hobby. I started taking apart hardware in the house, much to the dismay of my family. You know, they would come home and find the Wi-Fi scales taken apart and, you know, I'd be looking for vulnerabilities <laughs> in them and it was able, you know, what have you done now? We can't, you know, we, we can't use this stuff. We can't weigh ourselves or, you know, you, you, you've taken this stuff that we use. And I, I'd suddenly just found like my curiosity had just taken over and there were the odd weekends where the house would just be in absolute, it, it looked like destruction. You know, my wife would go into the bathroom and the bathroom scales would be destroyed and just torn apart or just mobile <laughs> devices. I'd sort of just be looking around finding everything. How oh, does this work? And, you know, uh, uh, take it apart. So it was, it was, it, it was a strange path to end up there sort of professionally. But it, like a lot of these things, they do start off with a, with a hobby and just a, a deep curiosity. Brilliant. That's pretty incredible. She was furious. She was furious. <laughs> so what happened to the bathroom scales there's wires and pieces everywhere and I was like I found, I found this vulnerability in these Wi-Fi scales and she's like I don't care I just want to weigh myself and I'm like no, no we've got to take them apart <laughs> did you have a connected microwave at the time also thankfully the, the, the microwave and the kettle have stayed safe <laughs> I, I recently just bought a new coffee machine and I keep sort of eyeing that up, and I think it's it's going to get time to take apart the coffee machine and, and see what's going on there. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, uh, it's like the manufacturers do it deliberately. They just hang the shiny thing in front of you, right? And I've like, got all this connectivity and all these interesting features, and, uh, and you just think, oh, I wonder what, how does this work? Let's just take this apart. You know, I'm, su I'm surprised that everything works in the house, right? You just want to pull everything apart. <laughs> when you get to breaking up connected toasters, you know you've made it in embedded security, that's for sure. <laughs> So your story actually reminds us a lot about someone else we had on, I think was actually our premiere episode, David Colombo, 19-year-old German boy from a small village who hacked into 28 Teslas. And uh, he also, he yeah, said, yeah. I was interested. I wanted to see how it works. I wanted to see if I could do this. And uh, it's, it's great that it comes from, you know. That, that's uh, what is one of the most attractive things about the industry, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay, so Adam, you're a big advocate of binary analysis as a key technology for improving product security. Can you explain to our listeners who may be less familiar with binary analysis exactly what that means, what that is? Sure, and I'll also go into sort of why I'm a big advocate of it, and you know why that's I think a critical approach, um, you know, for these embedded and safety critical systems. So with binary analysis. It's really just a term that, you know, encompasses the idea of just compiled software, right? And it's stuff that everybody's really sort of familiar with. Now, the industry is very mature when it, of course, comes to source code analysis. And people are, you know, more comfortable with that approach um, just because, you know, source code is... You know, there are more tools and resources. It is more readily available, and with compiled software and analysis, it's considered a bit more witchcraft, right? At the point where you compile software, it sort of the source code goes into this black box and it spits out executable code. And there's lots of reasons why it is advantageous to have that perspective of compiled software, why it is important to um, assess it from that perspective. 
So we think about all that work that goes in, this tremendous amount of work that goes into source code analysis and following guidelines and standards and the quality of code and the elegance of it. And then it goes into this sort of black box. People aren't sure what the compiler does, how to configure the compiler, how to give it the right instructions, how you're going to package it and packaging tools. And then you end up with some product that you just run and you do functional testing against it and, and QA. Now, it's, it's, it's really interesting how much time is spent, therefore, on the source code and the review of that, because that's not what you're actually executing or distributing. You're not distributing the source code to the end users. They don't have access to the source code. They have the representation of it, of what has happened, you know, during those multiple translation phases, and then you actually distribute that out to market. So I've always found it, you know, fascinating why more time isn't spent on what you distribute what the end users what the threat actors will have access to what is going to execute on the platform to actually you know assess that deeply and you know as a result we see lots of vulnerabilities suddenly emerge out of that just because of the way that the compiler has been configured or the way that build environments have just included all sorts of hidden secrets or documents because it raises that question, well, who reviewed the build environment? You spent all this time looking at the source code. Did anyone check the build environment and all the scripts and what was actually going to get built? Often you miss that. that, that that's often a huge blind spot. Now, it, wouldn't it be a great idea, like you see with the quality assurance of many products, check what is going out the door. A lot of industries do this, right? On food products and everything else, we check what's going out the door. You see it in restaurants and everything else. Whether the chefs check it, whether the service staff check it, they like to check what is going out the door. You know, the chef isn't just going to read about the ingredients. They want to check what is actually going to be served. And you would hope for that level of quality assurance. In the same way we build houses, a building inspector does not just review the blueprints. They come around and check what is actually built. Is it built to specification, the size of that property? So this is why, you know, when you look at all the lessons from other industries, is to check what is actually gone out. And, and that's really where, you know, it's not the best term. Probably a better term than binary analysis is just compiled or packaged software. But binary analysis is, of course, a big part in embedded software because it's compiled to native languages. So it's, it's a term that's just been around for a long time. But it is really about, it is really that emphasis on checking what is being distributed, what is going out the door, not the representation of what we've built. We're not just reviewing the, the, the blueprint. So that's why a huge advocate, and there's huge amounts of things that you can check that you can't do at a source code level. There are tons of non-functional requirements. There are hardening requirements that, you cannot check because they don't exist at a source code level. There are things the compiler will do, and the way you compile, the, actually compile the software and give those instructions to the compiler to help harden the software and make it more secure. It's impossible to do that, of course, at a source code analysis because you don't have that actual software asset to actually check it. So there are there are all sorts of even checks beyond just packaging about the 
quality of what that binary is or that embedded software is that you just cannot do at a source code level. So, you know, we always talk about high assurance, about checks. And I'm a big believer that if you're not checking what is packaged and distributed and the quality of that embedded software, you're not going to have that assurance. It is really as simple as that. Yeah, makes a lot of sense and uh, beautifully explained also. Uh, we obviously known about, known about the term and the, the practice for a long time, but that's a really strong explanation of why it's so important. I'm, I'm curious if we go up a few levels to uh, not the engineers, the security engineers, but actually the, the managers or even the C-levels. So I, I know you did a lot of work around product security strategy in general and more specifically about creating... KPIs that can be used by C-level executive to track and measure the, the ROI of product security, which is something I know a lot of teams struggle with today. So can you tell us a little bit about that, what you learned along the way? That's actually a great question. And it was actually during that position and having been tasked over a decade ago for drawing up software security strategies, that this, this really dawned on me because you're faced with this challenge of wanting to create you know, a quality software security strategy, right? That, that, that's critical, something you want everyone to follow. You want these goals. And the thing that I initially started struggling with was how is this measured? How, you know, the software security is about driving quality. You know, we want to achieve some goal and it, it's all about, you know, managing the risk for the business, helping achieve their objective. And when we're talking about software in this context, we're talking about quality. And I looked back at, previous software security strategies over the years and ones that you know I had to align to as an individual contributor security researcher and they just weren't measured there was no clear sort of KPIs it was sort of like just do stuff better and I was going you know what that's that's not good enough you know you don't do that in sales teams right you don't do that in a lot of other teams they they are they might be you know make a million dollars this year and everyone's got a sign and you, you get an idea of growth and you, you look at all these metrics in there. And yet for software security, there seems to be this lack of maturity in a lot of product software security strategies. I say, well, where, where's your metrics? How do we know, you know our, our return on investments? What, what are we going to do better? And interestingly, this is where this technology comes in. Because you have all the complexity of closed software supply chains, and maybe we'll go on to that later. But really, the, the, it was about visibility. What What is it we're dealing with? What are we trying to achieve? We don't want to sit here and talk about a single CVE all day, as, as fun and interesting that can be when you're down in the weeds. But that's not, you know, that's not about strategy. So using a technology like this, the way we get to organize our software assets, our inventory, and we get to draw you know, conclusions off that, we get to query it, we get to think, well, what is our technology stack? What is it we're dealing with? And for large products, even like a mobile OS or like a vehicle, right? An infotainment system has 120, on, on average, sort of more than 120 different file types, 140,000 uh, files on there. Right, they're, they're, these are large, complex systems. You can't put together a software security strategy as a leap of faith. And these are safety critical systems as well. So it's like, well, where do you start? So really, it was about being able to 
I, I just called it a, a, a quantified or measurable software security strategy, leveraging these techniques to measure where are we today? What do we have? Develop that visibility and let that direct our quality. Interesting. Otherwise, the KPIs and the, you know, the, the goals are just too fluffy. It's a, a leap of faith exercise. And it was about gathering everything up, having the visibility, having the inventory. And I say, well, where are we today? And what do we want to be? What do we want to be when we grow up? Where do we want to be in a couple of years? What are we trying to achieve? And to actually track that over time. Because like we know with return of investment, um, you, you can't really prove an ROI unless it's measured against something, unless it's measured against a, a goal. How, how am I going to show someone an ROI if you don't know where you're headed or where you are today? It, it's really just going to be based against very fluffy opinion, finger in the air exercise. And, and, and that's just not acceptable anymore. The industry has matured significantly even over the past decade. So really leveraging the uh, tools with binary static analysis and compile software made it much easier. You know, you've got this, this sort of universal approach, just going to stick it all in the bucket. What do we know? What are we dealing with? And just answer some of these simple questions to get it started and then decide, well, who are we as a business? What sort of product do we want to release? Because bear in mind, we're just right. talking about quality. Right. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned um, strategy and metrics. Uh, one of the early guests on our podcast series was a guy called Chris Gates, who's a consultant in the medical device uh, industry primarily, mm. amongst others. Uh, and he, he talked about also the importance of mindset and having the mindset that you're constantly questioning, well, how do I know that that component is safe? How do I know that you know the code that was taken from open source is safe? And I think it goes together that you know you have the strategy to be, let's say, you know, X percent better than the year before, and you know, less vulnerabilities in your product, and you also have the KPIs to meet. And and once you have all of that together with the mindset, then you're in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting. You've actually, you know, you you, you didn't say secure. You said safe. <laughs> that brings uh, us into yeah, our yeah, next you know, question. Uh, you know. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Okay. The uh, you know a very nice sort of, you know uh, terminology using it, and, and obviously very relevant. You know that. Uh, yeah. Was, uh, you know, interesting term. It's about safe open source software. You know, yeah. Very rare you hear people talk about that. So. One of the biggest issues, and we've talked about this already um, between ourselves, um, one of the biggest issues in, in, in the uh, device and product industries, whether it's automotive, medical, ICS, it's the interlink between safety and security. So how do you see the connection between these two worlds? You know, it, uh, it, it's a subject I'm really passionate about and sort of um, I find fascinating just because of the engineering challenges. So, you know, with safety and security, you know, these aren't orthogonal concerns. You've got to think of it like a Venn diagram. And, um, you know, th this really dropped for me a long time ago in engagements when I happened to just be talking to security and safety. And then, uh, you know, I, I just read a lot on safety as sort of a hobby and now career. But you can see this overlap. It's all about quality and managing risk. So you've got these differences in terms of like impact and people will tend to just think of security in terms of security critical systems, whereby it's just if the data is exposed, we're just talking about data breaches. It's all really about the data. 
with safety critical systems, they tend to just be that uh, at least if an actuator exists, that that system can cause some harm to life or limb. I know they're really the the two main differences between them. So you know, very different impact. One really focused on the data, the other being essentially that this will this can physically cause harm, right? The the these systems. But we we look at the, the, the if you imagine this sort of Venn diagram, this overlap between the two, it's all about managing risk to manage the impact, and we do that by you know assessing quality, and that, that could be true in standards and regulatory practices. But there's a huge overlap between the two, um, and I would really strongly recommend because it was an eye opener for, for me, you know just being focused on security critical systems to read safety books these guys have been doing it forever i, I love safety engineers i i envy them because i'm not a safety engineer and i love their approach to engineering and you will be immediately familiar with some of the approaches and it's often just a bit of a terminology change they do go about measuring um risk and impact differently because that is a nature of the job um, but there's a huge amount to learn from safety. And if you're going to be assessing safety critical systems, it's not enough to just follow that approach from a security critical systems right. perspective. Right? It, it, it's, it's generally the premise, as we've all learned, that safety first, safety first. It gets drilled into you. You know, We all know it from being a, a child when you cross the road and everything else. No one's ever said to you security first. Right. That's not, it's not a thing. Not safety first. <laughs> Yeah, not not yeah, and 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 it's critical to know. You're never going to see, at least in my experience so far, a security requirement that would override a safety requirement, just because the sheer nature of the impacts. So you know, for example, in the world of security critical systems, you can hammer the hardening down all day long. And the reason often for that is security critical systems have an abundance of computing resources. They're often not constrained in an environment like embedded systems are. So you can say, let's hammer it with all the compiler defensive flags. And that will impact the performance of the system. So great, we'll have a super, much more resilient, reliable uh, system. But as a result now, because it's on an embedded device, it won't work. Right. You know that's not uh, that's not a compromise or a balance that a business, you know, w uh, would be willing to accept. You know, you haven't managed risk because it, you've still got the end goal that it needs to be a functional product. Um, and, and safety, as far as I'm concerned, will always trump any security requirements. You know, if there's ever this sort of trade-off, because uh, again, just because of the impact and the nature of safety over security. You know, and, and there's still a lot to be managed between the two because you can find, for example, that there, there is a lot of complexity in these things. You may find that, you know, you find a denial of service or exhausting resources, security requirements. How are we going to manage that from a safety perspective? How do we return the system into a safe state? How do we know it's going to be reliable? So you have to see them work together. Like I say, they're not orthogonal concerns. They, they, there's this balance. It, it's this elegance behind the two engineering terms and a real skill that is required to find, you know, that balance on on their right. on their requirements. 
Uh, as I say, I'd recommend to anyone to read, you know, any books or speak to any safety engineer. I, I, I'm fascinated with them, and it's been around, you know, uh, a lot longer than security. And this is why was why everyone, I'm sure, has experienced this this chase that we're on for, um, you know, security, and it's it, it's catching people out, but not really so right, much for safety. Right. Um, I think there's a recurring theme in the in the manufacturing world where you have, on the one hand. Uh, disciplines and knowledge that was built over many, many, many years. And then you have everything that has to do with software and security, which is so new co- in comparison. So it makes a lot of sense to learn from from what people did so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious, Adam, I imagine you saw a lot over the years. So can you share with us the most amazing or really hard to believe moment you had in, in your career? I'm sure you have a good story around that. <laughs> Or many good <laughs> stories. Probably lots, probably, <laughs> yeah, there's probably a lot, a lot I can't even talk about, um, that, which is a problem. Um, honestly, it, it's just to be involved in the industry. This, this is it, it was a desire since I was very young. My, my brothers still talk about it. They, they talk about uh, they're, they're not they're not techies. My brothers, but uh, they always remind me about. You know, I used to have this fascination with malware and virus development. And I think I was about 12 or 13 years old um, when I got into malware development. And they talk about it. And, they, they, and it was very sort of the, the visual and very sort of typically like destructive behavior, being, you know, when you're lashing out at those sorts of years. And they still remember it and talk about it. I, I, I've got a vague memory of it, but I was always like fascinated and, you know, f- fascinated in tech. But it, it, it was just to be involved in it. I remember just very early on, like, you know, wanting to do tech i didn't know what shape or form that looked like i didn't even know until you know what i didn't even know to my early 20s the security industry existed i just you know I, I was just playing all the time just loved it just coding and it wasn't until i came out to university towards the end of university that uh, you know there was this industry uh emerging i didn't know anything about it so it was just honestly just the the, the privilege of being as great moments of just being able to release vulnerabilities that have never existed before and see them in products and you know talk at world-renowned conferences it, it, i just feel like so proud to be involved in it right and surrounded by good people who are just so passionate about it and it's amazing to get paid for it because you're doing it anyway <laughs> you know and uh, you know if people realize it you you'd have done it pretty much without a pay a pay slip anyway you know because it's like well i was doing it anyway um, don't don't tell the bosses that you know. To, don't, don't want them to cut. <laughs> we'll cut the keep off. we'll keep that as but, a secret. Know, yeah, 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 keep that one quiet. Yeah, but you know, it's wild. Like you just you do it all the time, like weekends and evenings and things like that before it, you know there was even you know a, an industry. So it's just, it's just to be involved in it. There's there's just so many moments where just you know just, just doing presentations and getting to study, just fascinating systems and the way things work and question that and you meet these brilliant people like the teams who are just so skilled and passionate and you just think what a privilege and you get in paid for it. it it's just it's incredible i i had a fascination at mid-20s about floating point arithmetic and you know you go off and study ieee 754 and i still remember it all and finding rounding errors in number systems and getting involved in banking security and you know, no one has any expectations from you. You just get to read and study this yeah. stuff on a weekend. You know, yep. how, do, how do these numbers work? And how do you implement this? And then, like, 
oh yeah, I know you. We'll we'll fly you across the world, and you can write a paper on it. Like really, you're gonna pay me for? Because it? it was just like it was just a hobby. I was just sitting in my chair and just reading stuff, and like you, you know, you, you just you just enjoy it. You just want to do it anyway. There's so many great, so many great memories. Just you know, a lot of fond memories of uh, people who have, you know, with all this energy and all this inspiration. It's just, it, it's incredible, and it, it doesn't stop. And now it's all there at Cybellum. Well, we're really happy that you're on the uh, good side <laughs> of this point. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, always, always. <laughs> I'd be worried if you were on the other side. So, I guess our last question, and with this, we'll wrap up. Do you have any practical tips specifically for developing or obtaining budget, which you know is not always the easiest thing to do uh, for product teams going into 2023? I think there's a, I think there's a couple of approaches to it for obtaining budget. Like most things, right? You've got to think about your audience. You know what are their concerns. So when you're passionate about something, it doesn't mean that's the stuff that you're going to have to talk about to that audience. You know, you know, you're not going to impress a CFO to talk about CVEs and CVSS scores, no matter how passionate you are about it or try and persuade them how important it is. You know, it's not, and rightfully so, it's not their concern. And it's something I, I had the fortunate experience of, you know, getting to learn and reframe things. So I'd say one thing is start to, understand the business what what do they want to build not what you want to build what the what does the business want to build you know you, you recognize that you're working for a business to help achieve to help them achieve a goal um and i think we've all been there at one point where you know we've wanted to do our own things or we believe this is how things should be done because it's it's personal but remember it you know there is there is a business behind it they've got a lot of concerns they're trying to balance all sorts of things that you're not always privy to so really trying to, you know, one align to the, the vision and that product because, you know, you're going to need to speak to the right audience. You're all agreeing you're going to strive towards the development of that business. And then know your regulatory practices. That helps, right? It's very difficult to argue with regulatory practices. Um, you know, they are quantified in terms of when it comes to risk and business, every C-level exec will get and understand the penalty if you don't follow regulatory practices. And know your standards as well. You know, it's always great to help align to standards for quality. They're, they're very good reference material. And then in terms of more building out a actual product security team, it's really looking at the strategy. And, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting technique to this as well, is that, if you are faced with large and complex problems, look at your inventory of your software. Do you just have a basic understanding of the inventory software in the products? Um, I've done many assessments with huge organizations. And you look at the skill sets with the product security team, and they're not aligned with the technology stack with what's being developed. And that's where the inventory comes back. And it's great to have these measurable, like anything, these data points to present to someone, right? That gives a lot of credibility. And you, you, you're arguing that towards a CFO or a CEO that you've gone off, and it's not a leap of faith exercise. No one, no one likes a leap of faith exercise. It's not great. You know, you want something that is measured. They, they expect to see that. They do that with their numbers. They do that with budget. And show how you're going to spend it responsibly. Not based on just you know, just because you've got a gut feeling about it. 
And this is why I'm always so focused on the inventory and assets of software, because we do this all over the place. We do this with the ingredients of food. We do this with building materials, right, to manage anything we're going to build and develop. It doesn't have to be any different than software. you just got to know about the technology that exists, that this stuff can be done. So once you've got that quantifiable data together, it's very easy to start putting together the plan and then to start to articulate that about how you're going to, to, to spend responsibly as well, because things are going to be measured. And a CFO likes to see things get measured. The CEO wants to see things get measured. We all do. It makes sense. We work towards a common goal and we can show the improvements. And that would be what, one of the biggest tips is you know, try your best that when you're putting together the software security strategy, there's very clear KPIs and that you can continue to measure and monitor over time. It can be done. And I, I think it's just having awareness of that, um, you know, is one of the, the, the big steps. And how are you going to go about achieving that? And how are you going to check in a month later to do it? And obviously try and automate it and scale it as easy as you can. But you will have those concrete data points, and it's those that will hopefully show you the change in product quality over time. And you can demonstrate the, the return of investment from your initiatives. It might be training. It might be tooling. You know, It doesn't matter what the initiative is, but you can start to look at the correlation of that initiative to the change of product quality and hopefully to the overall success of the business. And I don't think any executive you know, is really going to want to argue with that. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. And that take, kind of takes us full circle from what you talked about earlier regarding making sure you have a strategy, making sure you have the metrics and the KPIs. And once you have those in place, you can then go and you know ask uh, for the budget that you need in order to fulfill that strategy with the measurements along the way. And yeah, CFOs much, much prefer a pitch like that than just coming and saying, hey, did you see that company got hacked? We need budget now to make sure we don't. Absolutely. Uh, that's a really nice example. And we see that, you know, far too often, right? The, the, the classic sort of FUD or scaremongering approach, it doesn't work and it shouldn't be done. That's not professional. You know, the, you can put together a measured quantifiable software security strategy and it doesn't need to be based on headlines and it shouldn't. Um, you know, I, I, and I, I think that gives the industry a bad name, you know, when you do that approach as well. Yep, I agree with you completely. So, Adam, uh, I think we've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. And I want to thank you for uh, this wonderful chat. And, you know, on the personal side, I'm really looking forward to collaborating going forward. That's the same. And thank you for the, the great questions. And always listen to me rant on about something as well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.